Hello and welcome to this episode of Climate 201. In this we're doing the second part of our series on Project Drawdown, which is a ranking of the solutions for climate mitigation. There are a few more solutions then from Drawdown that I'd like to highlight. One thing that Drawdown likes to draw attention to in their solutions is the solutions surrounding refrigeration. Between better management of refrigerants and use of alternative refrigerants, Drawdown suggests that around 100 gigatons of CO2 equivalent could potentially be avoided in the years to 2050. Now, listeners might remember from our episodes on greenhouse gases that the refrigerant gases like HFCs and so on are very, very potent at trapping heat in the Earth's atmosphere. So even though they're produced in comparatively small quantities industrially compared to CO2, they can still contribute quite a bit to warming. In that episode, we discussed that there are quite a lot of disputes surrounding precisely how you rank all of these different greenhouse gases, which ones you should prioritise and so on. I won't get into all of that again here, except to say that obviously the estimates of how important these gases are will be quite sensitive to where you fall down on that side of the argument, and whether you care more about long-term warming or short-term warming and so on. But what's interesting in this is that actually, if you take the drawdown estimates, they estimate the impact on climate from the mass deployment of solar panels, it actually ends up being pretty similar to that from the changes to the gases that we use to refrigerate products. It also ranks alongside the contraception, education and family planning regimes that could avoid nearly a billion births, and potentially higher even than restoring the tropical rainforests in terms of climate impact. And I think this is one of the interesting things that, that Drawdown, I think, are trying to draw out when they rank all of these climate solutions in this quantitative way, is this question of, okay, well, maybe there are some solutions that we don't think of as often as we should, but actually have quite a big high leverage impact with relatively little actual activity that needs to take place to do it. So, I mean, how often are people talking about refrigerants and refrigeration when it comes to climate change? So it's another example of where I guess these quantitative measures can be helpful to point out where more emphasis is needed. The good news is that there is some progress being made here. So the Montreal Protocol, which outlawed CFCs that we talked about before, um, that helped stop preventing the uh, hole in the ozone layer from getting any bigger, there, there was a thing passed called the Kigali Amendment to the Montreal Protocol, which is now working to outlaw HFCs, hydrofluorocarbons. So these were the things that replaced CFCs. The uh, sort of irony there is that CFCs were these ozone-destroying chemicals that were used in refrigerants. They replaced them with HFCs, but now when the HFC escapes, it's a potent greenhouse gas, so we can't really use them either. But the Kigali Amendment, starting with high-income countries in 2019 and moving to a global ban by 2028, is outlawing these things and replacing them with natural refrigerants instead. So dedicated listeners will of course remember that a few years back we did an episode in our Teot Wauki series, which was about climate change, called Lessons from Montreal, which tried to discuss why it is that the Montreal Protocol to fix the hole in the ozone layer was a relatively easier international treaty to negotiate than global binding regulation on greenhouse gas emissions. If the Kigali Amendment is fully implemented, it could avoid up to 0.4 degrees Celsius of warming over the century compared to a scenario where we do nothing to regulate HFCs. And so obviously this is a bit of a prerequisite if we're going to stay underneath the Paris Agreement target of 2 degrees Celsius. A reminder that we're at sort of 1.1, 1.2 degrees of warming now, and of course there's going to be some warming that's going to come from sh shutting down our emissions to zero in the coming decades. 
So this sort of 0.4 degrees Celsius of leverage might not sound like that much, but actually it's a big fraction of the remaining warming that we have. So we really need to do this to have any hope of satisfying Paris. And of course, doing this is part of uh, banning HFCs in the future. But another thing is ensuring that all of the HFCs and CFCs that are currently in equipment that's out there or being built at the moment, um, these, these things need to be recovered safely and disposed of properly. And that's very important. Now, there are procedures that can do this, but obviously it's quite a specialist job to dispose of these gases. And, you know, in certain cases when things aren't being dealt with properly and they're going to landfill instead, you can see that these gases might leak out and end up having their global warming impact. So right there on the front line of our fight against climate change is anyone who's disposing of any air conditioning units or refrigerators. You might not think about it, but true enough. They are on the front line against climate change, and we salute their efforts. There's a historical aside here that I can't really resist, which a lot of people do like to bring up. So the predominant technology in modern refrigerators that requires these gases is based on cycles of compressing and expanding the gas in the fridge. You essentially have a fluid, the refrigerant, which floats around a cycle of evaporating and condensing at different pressures and temperatures. And of course, when a fluid evaporates, it draws in heat, which is the latent heat of evaporation, which is required to turn it from liquid to gas form. And when it draws in this latent heat, it draws heat away from the contents of the fridge. Now, by pressurising it, you can change the temperature at which it will evaporate and condense. And so you can kind of go through this cycle where you're constantly sucking heat out of the fridge and into the refrigerant. But in the 1930s, Albert Einstein and fellow physicist Zillard, they actually worked on the design for a different kind of fridge that would have no moving parts and could instead use the compression of gases like ammonia, which would be far less damaging to the environment. Now, you might remember that Einstein and Zillard were the same physicists who sent the letter to President Roosevelt, which warned that the Nazis might try to develop an atomic bomb, which led to the establishment of the Manhattan Project. So it might seem strange, given how pivotal this was to world history, that one of their other side projects was a new type of fridge. Reportedly, they were actually inspired to pursue this design after hearing of a leak from an early fridge that released the toxic refrigerant gases and killed a whole family, tragically, in Berlin. So at the time, this of course wasn't really motivated so much by the desire to avoid gases that might harm the ozone layer or cause global warming. But instead, they wanted to get rid of the compressors in traditional fridges, which could burst or explode under the wrong conditions and release these toxic gases to the people's homes. So quoting from the book Caesar's Last Breath by Sam Keane on the specific operation of this fridge, he wrote, quote, In the simplest type of absorption fridge, you start with two liquids mixed together in a chamber, the absorbent and the refrigerant. The key to the design is that, at low temperatures, these substances mix readily. But if you raise the temperature, usually by warming the chamber with a small methane flame, the refrigerant boils out as a gas, leaving the absorbent behind. The refrigerant gas now goes on a long and torturous journey. It first flows into the tubes behind the fridge and dumps the heat it absorbed from the flame. This step simultaneously cools the refrigerant back into liquid. The liquid flows by gravity into the panels inside the fridge where it sucks the heat out of the fridge. Absorbing this heat causes the liquid to reboil, and the resulting gas whisks the latent heat away, removing it from the unit's interior. 
Meanwhile, back in the original chamber, the methane flame has switched off, allowing the absorbent there to cool down. A jacket of cold water then cools the absorbent further. The absorbent cools so much, in fact, that when the refrigerant gas finally gets back into the chamber, the absorbent condenses it into liquid and reabsorbs it. And you therefore end up back where you started, with a mix of two liquids that you can separate with a flame. So you're going round and round this process, you're providing energy with this flame, and every time you get the, uh, the refrigerant gas going through the refrigerator, it's sucking heat out of the contents of the fridge. So overall, absorption fridges and regular fridges, they cool things down the same way by boiling gases, but they use a different process to cycle the refrigerant around. Now, they eventually submitted 45 patents for this fridge's design, but the discovery of Freon gas, which could be used in the other type of refrigerator and was non-toxic, meant that the Einstein Zillard fridge, which was less energy efficient at the time, was essentially abandoned by the major manufacturers, and eventually they gave up on it. The point here to make is that there are always these sliding doors moments in technology development, when it's not clear which road technological development is going to go down. In hindsight, it always seems inevitable and an almost linear progression, but in reality it does end up being shaped by a lot of decisions and strokes of fortune that people make along the way and that occur along the way. A classic example, of course, would be the electric car. The majority of cars in the 1880s, 1890s, and so on, they were electric, and even by 1900, when internal combustion engines had started to catch up a bit, a third of the cars in the US were still electric by 1900. One of the classic stories from that era is that of electric car manufacturer Oliver Fritschler, who in 1908 claimed to have an electric car that could travel 100 miles on a single charge. To give you a sense of perspective here, the Ford Focus Electric sold in 2011 had a range of just 75 miles, later upgraded to 115 miles in 2017. And yes, there are Tesla models which in 2017 could do 300 plus miles. I guess the point here is that it's pretty astounding that, at least in terms of range, an electric car made in 1908 could seriously compete with vehicles that were being produced over a century later. Fritschler was so confident in his car that he drove from Lincoln, Nebraska to New York City in one journey, covering 1,800 miles across some dodgy roads over the course of around 20 days. The electric charging infrastructure back then was actually good enough that you could plan such a journey with stops to recharge every 10 hours or so. But a combination of the invention of the self-starting engine, which meant that hand cranks which were previously used to start engines weren't needed anymore, and the cheaper costs enabled by mass manufacturer of internal combustion engine cars eventually did for Fritschler Electric. The invention of the Ford Model T, which was the first really mass-produced and mass-manufactured automobile, drove the electric cars out of competition. And even with their recent resurgence, they've never got close to the share of vehicle market that they had in 1900. Fritschler himself died in 1951. But when one of his surviving original cars was moved to the Colorado Museum of History, it was still able to drive through the streets of Denver under its own power in 1990. A taste, maybe, of the future that might still await us. Now, of course, Ford were initially working on increasing the range of electric cars at the turn of the century. In fact, it was in a high-profile collaboration with Thomas Edison, first announced in 1914 in the New York Times, that Ford talked about the ambition to make an affordable electric car. According to Wired, though, the project fell apart over a dispute on batteries. Ford wanted Edison's nickel-ion batteries to be used in powering the car, but they had internal resistance that was too high 
which made them unsuitable for powering electric cars. They were substituted with heavier lead-acid batteries behind Ford's back, and supposedly when he found out about this, he was enraged, which helped to lead to the project eventually falling apart. So again, then, you have to consider the sliding doors moments of history. What if the developments in the internal combustion engine in the early 1900s had not been made? What if Ford had decided to pursue an electric car strategy instead of going with the internal combustion engine? The incentives to develop more efficient batteries and car designs and a network for charging points would have been more than they were today. All of this infrastructure that we now talk about having to change so that it can be ready for electric cars would always have been electric. And just think how efficient and brilliant the electric cars would be after a hundred years of development nowadays if we'd carried on down that road back in the early 1900s. Of course, it's always possible that the advantages of fossil fuel cars, particularly when oil is cheap and its environmental impacts are not included in your accounting, would have won out regardless. But maybe humanity would have missed out on a vast source of CO2 emissions and dependence on oil for transportation. Things could have been so different. History isn't inevitable. We live in a series of accidents all the time. On the subject of electric cars, they also make Drawdown's list, but the total impact of them is considerably smaller than some of the other options that we've considered. They expect between 12 and 15 gigatons of CO2 will be avoided by the adoption of electric cars. Remember that on average nowadays we're emitting about 40 gigatons globally per year of CO2, so we're talking between now and 2050 of maybe a third of a year's emissions being avoided by the adoption of electric cars. This is due to the assumption that they make that by 2050, the fraction of cars that are electric will be around 16 to 23%. So Drawdown don't actually think electric cars are going to take over from conventional cars, even in the next 30 years. And you might disagree, you might think that that's pessimistic. Depends on who you're talking to. Drawdown note that according to their calculations, electric cars powered by the conventional grid reduce emissions by 50%, and those powered by renewables reduce emissions by 95%. So this is a common fallacy that you hear. These figures do, of course, vary by the make and model of car, as well as the composition of the fuel mix on the grid. You commonly hear objections to electric cars saying things like, well, if the electricity is generated by fossil fuels, it's not actually greener. This is false, in part due to the increased efficiency of the electrical engines compared to fossil fuels. Life cycle assessments of the emissions due to cars are a pretty standard calculation in the field, which attempt to take into account all of the emissions associated with manufacturing and using the car throughout its lifetime. CarbonCounter.com has a really cool interactive graphic which plots the cost of a car over its lifetime versus the lifetime emissions of that car. And a couple of major conclusions come from it. The first is that there aren't any battery electric vehicles which have higher lifetime emissions than any fossil fuel cars although there are a small number of hybrids which do have higher emissions than very small, compact fossil fuel cars. And number two is that actually there's a pretty close to a linear regression in the fossil fueled cars. The most expensive cars are also the most polluting. Obviously, a large part of this correlation is driven at the high end by gas-guzzling SUVs, which are both expensive to run and destructive for the environment, and which, by the way, are totally unnecessary for the vast majority of people to drive, but which have managed to convince many of us to destroy the planet and our bank balances with some slick advertising and marketing them as a status symbol. So there's a win for humanity there, I guess. 
So the drawdown assumption is that electric cars won't make a huge difference, but it all rests on this 16 to 23% adoption by 2050 idea, this assumption they make in their model. Could we do better? The UK is hoping to ban new sales on fossil fuel cars by 2035, in line with our net zero target for 2050. In fact, there's some discussion that they want to bring this forward even further to 2030. I don't know by the time this episode is released whether that will have got anywhere or not. That would mean that presumably the UK's car fleet would be 80 to 90% electric by 2050. There are 14 countries who are currently considering similar measures, and even China is said to be researching a timetable into doing this, which would be a major coup if it happened. If these policies actually go ahead, then alongside the increased adoption of electric cars in countries without the ban, we might have a better fraction of cars going electric by 2050. If we can ensure that lots of countries where private car ownership isn't going on at the moment are always electric and don't ever have this phase of ICE use, then there's a decent chance this fraction could be higher. Recent projections in 2018 by the US Department of Transport, however, suggest that by 2050 there may only be 22% electric cars in operation, unless things change. Again, this is an interesting point on the quantitative impact of different measures we can take. Managing refrigeration better, in terms of recovering these gases and changing technologies, at least according to Drawdown, is almost 10 times as important as the anticipated switch to electric cars. On the other hand, it also illustrates how you can criticise some of the assumptions that they make. For example, I would argue that 22% is quite likely even if we don't make any radical changes to encourage electric vehicle adoption. But getting 75% of the world's population to stick to a plant-rich diet, which would buck current trends, could well be a lot more difficult. I would say it's probably easier to go 100% electric cars than to get 75% of the world's population to stick to a plant-rich diet. But your mileage may vary on that one. I want to group together now a whole bunch of the other solutions that Drawdown discusses into general land management and agricultural methods. I won't go into too much detail here, but I will just briefly discuss the ideas. Each of these solutions accounts for around 20 to 30 gigatons of CO2, according to Drawdown. I'm going to keep it that vague here, though, and partly this is because when it comes to these natural solutions, the carbon stored is often based on only a few small measurements, and relies on some pretty hefty assumptions about very big swaths of the world's land being managed. We discussed in the last episode how we talk a lot about afforestation, we want to build back the forests, but there are issues with actually following through on these pledges. And so while I think it's very important to talk about these technologies, I think that in some ways the barriers to adopting them can be even higher than they are in the case of uh, more, shall we say, technological technologies because you need to get so many stakeholders on side, and you need to get so many people willing to spend money on regenerative agriculture. I think that changing these practices is going to be quite difficult. And so whenever someone comes up with what you call a technical potential estimate, which is like, if we do everything perfectly, how much carbon dioxide will we save? When it comes to these natural solutions, I'm a bit more sceptical of them, because you have to make more assumptions about how well things work, and the uncertainties are bigger. Whereas it's a bit easier to determine how much CO2 you might save from turning off a coal power plant and replacing it with solar and batteries, for example. So I think the error bars on these are pretty large, but if they're adopted by everyone or a good fraction of people, 20 to 30 gigatons of CO2 per solution. So these are quite hefty chunks of 
the target that we would need to go for. Of course, remember that the Drawdown website, drawdown.org, has justifications and technical papers associated with each of these where you can actually dig into the assumptions if you're really interested in getting into the weeds here. So these nature-based solutions then. One of them is silvopasture. That is, you have trees and pasture together with cattle grazing amidst trees. Having trees on land that's agriculturally managed can source substantially more carbon than traditional agriculture, but obviously it's costly and slow to implement. There are co-benefits. The trees can allow the farmers to produce different products. You can have nuts and things or fruits growing on the trees sometimes, and they may also offer some protection from the extreme weather conditions. But I think you need to incentivize people to do this because there are reasons we don't have trees everywhere in the middle of fields at the moment. Similar to silvopasture is tree intercropping, planting trees amidst certain kinds of crop. The advantages here can include things like the trees preventing erosion, protecting certain vulnerable plants from storms or excessive sunlight, as well as, of course, sequestering the carbon in those trees. Depending on what you plant, again, they can provide an extra useful source of income for farmers in themselves, which might come in as income at a different time to their main crop or their main uh, use of cattle. Obviously, this did used to be a much more common practice before the rise of industrialised agriculture, where most of the trees were ploughed under to give rise to these vast farms that cover many hectares with a single crop. When it comes to livestock, you can preserve some of the land that they're grazing on by cycling them through different pastures, preventing those pastures from being excessively degraded by overgrazing. Similarly, letting animals spread out more so that you don't have this degraded land will allow the land that they graze to store more carbon. The hope is that managed grazing like this makes the land more productive in the long run and thus allows you to, eventually, raise more animals before the land is totally depleted, resulting in more long-term profits. Of course, you can see the issue here. There's a reason that you don't buy four fields and leave three of them empty and have only one of them with cows in, in general, because the economic incentive is basically going to be to pack grazing animals as close together as possible on a smaller plot of land as you can get away with, and to pursue as much short-term profit even at the expense of long-term viability for the land plot, as is possibly feasible. Protecting peatlands is very important. Peatland, the type of bogs and mires that hobbits would trek through probably halfway through the second movie, is made up of decomposing plant matter, and so it's basically just a mulch made up of stored carbon. According to Drawdown, peatland, which covers up to 3% of the Earth's land area, stores twice as much carbon as the world's forests. Perhaps up to 500 gigatons of carbon is locked up in peatland. So if you remember the episode on carbon budgets, if all of that peatland carbon was released into the atmosphere straight away, we'd be in serious trouble. When that peat becomes exposed to air, it can oxidise, producing bubbles of CO2, and these peatlands can, if they're degraded, become sources as well as sinks of CO2. Luckily for us, peat is generally valued less than wood from forests, and so 85% of the world's peatland is basically still intact. But much like fossil fuels, it can take many, many years to form and just a moment to burn. It can take thousands of years to build up peatlands, but only a few for them to be destroyed. But a combination of strong protections for the peatland that exists, fire prevention, which is going to increasingly be a problem in a climate-changed world where these extreme fires are just becoming more and more deadly and, and devastating large areas and places which traditionally you wouldn't have fires are seeing fires as well. 
and of course re-wetting some of the degraded areas so that they can become sinks of carbon again. All of these things could save substantial CO2 emissions, alongside of course protecting a natural ecosystem and the creatures that depend on these unique habitats to survive. Planting new forests on degraded land is one of the solutions that they talk about. This clearly again increases the sink of carbon in the trees and the surrounding soil, but of course you need to be careful about how it's done as we talked about in the show on afforestation earlier. Simply planting huge forests with a single kind of tree tends to be worse for the environment and lead to less stable forests and ecosystems. This isn't really my field, but I know that there's a hell of a lot of research done into this, and pretty much everyone involved says the same thing. A lot of these monoculture plantations where you just have the one type of tree are quite unsustainable. A better alternative is to plot a variety of different species being planted which were originally native to the area, trying to restore something that at least vaguely resembles what you destroyed in the first place. And, you know, that's, that's common sense, really. One of the other solutions they talk about is restoring forests in the temperate zone, i.e. mostly in the northern hemisphere mid-latitudes. So, if you're listening to this, you're quite likely to be in the northern hemisphere mid-latitudes, uh, with apologies to my contingent of hardcore Australian listeners, um, in, in the UK and in Europe and in North America. 99% of these forests have been altered by human activity in some way, whether converted to timber production, wiped out for agriculture, or disrupted by development. Although the area that they cover is much smaller than the tropical forests, and the rate of deforestation is slower now, partly because of protections that wealthy countries have put in place, and partly simply because we get all of our wood now from cutting down the tropical forests, there are still many millions of hectares that could be restored in the future. Another solution that they suggest is switching some of the crops to perennial crops rather than annual crops. Crops that grow the entire year around, like bananas, avocado, breadfruit and nuts, they store more carbon than the crops that are harvested every year. But annual crops can account for about 89% of what's grown on cultivated land at the moment. Shifting that balance slightly by doubling the amount of perennial crops could also make the crops more resilient to climate changes. Some of these crops do have a higher yield at a lower cost than the annual alternatives. So the major barrier here, alongside persuading farmers to change, is the market demand for annual versus perennial crops, which is a little bit harder to deal with. But wouldn't it be interesting if we could all switch our diets a little bit more to include some of these perennial crops, things like bananas, avocado, breadfruit and nuts, rather than things that have to be harvested annually? I mean, in many ways, it's also better in terms of the transportation and the preservation of these things, because you're not eating stuff out of season if it grows all the time. It's, it's slightly better for the environment in that way as well. When you do have annual crops, it's important to manage these with carbon in mind. Green manure, instead of artificial nitrogen fertilisers, which produce nitrous oxide as a greenhouse gas, is one way to go. There's, of course, things that people talk about compost and organic production techniques, rotating these annual crops on a regular basis, and avoiding tilling of the fields where you turn over the, uh, the manure and so on that's going on. It can all result in a greater deal of carbon sequestration in the soils, doubling, tripling, or even quadrupling the amount of carbon that's stored in the soil. Now the aim here is that this regenerative agriculture will also be important for the long-term productive capacity of the soils, which is again being degraded over time by this approach to sort of smash and grab, uh, degrade the soils, masses of nitrogen fertiliser, all of this sort of 
bad junk farming that is done um, with the aim to maximise yields while not necessarily considering the long-term productivity or the climate impacts of what's being done. One thing they talk about that might be quite an interesting thing to think about is bamboo. A bamboo, when planted, can be a rapid way of drawing down CO2. It can live on some quite degraded land and acts to draw down carbon faster than nearly any other plant. It has uses for humans too, as food, building material, and paper. It actually has a similar tensile strength to steel. The only issue is ensuring that you don't plant it in areas with other fragile ecosystems, as it can prove to be quite an invasive species. Now, Drawdown estimates that there are nearly 400 million hectares of farmland that have now been abandoned because the soils are too degraded to produce sufficient food. The main issue there is that it can often be cheaper to find a new land, either through deforestation or migration, or even in some cases forcibly evicting the people who live there, than it is to restore the degraded land, which is time-consuming and labour-intensive. But clearly, if this is done, it can turn this degraded land from a net source of carbon into a sink, alongside reducing the pressures to feed the world, which are only going to get worse in light of continually degraded soils, an increasing population that demands more food, perhaps, and, of course, the climate shocks and the natural disasters, the heating that reduces yields and the increasing levels of natural disaster that we're likely to see in a climate-changed world. So this is, you know, this is something that even if you decide there's other better ways of reducing CO2 emissions, we have to do it anyway. Now, rice, of course, rice is a staple food for much of the world, but flooded rice paddies are also a substantial source of methane. You have loads of methane-producing bacteria that thrive in them, and perhaps 10-20% to of human-caused methane emissions are coming from these flooded rice paddies. So, what do we do about this? Well, there are different strains of rice that are being bred at the moment, which don't require quite as much water. They can be planted in some environments. And there are different ways of providing nutrients to the rice and draining the paddies in the middle of growing season. So you don't have quite as long with these sort of paddies that are flooded where you have all of these bacteria producing methane the whole time. All of these techniques would help us to reduce the emissions from the paddies. But again, you have to think about here the the sort of situation on the ground where someone has a rice paddy. The first thing that they're going to be thinking about is getting enough rice that's going to feed the people around them. Uh, maybe a little bit extra to sell and have their livelihood. So to get people to adopt these practices that are going to be uh, more conducive to reducing CO2, you you need to put the incentive structure in place. You need to do some persuasion and you need to make sure that it doesn't conflict with other things that are just as important as well. And I think that's a really important aspect of all of this circular economy stuff you have to think about, is that there will be cases where there are trade-offs that you have to try and make. So you can see that actually perhaps a surprising number of the major changes we need to adopt to mitigate our emissions and solve climate change, at least relative to what people often think about, are to do with the way that we grow food and the way that we manage the land that's under cultivation at the moment. In a world where there's immense competition for land, some of these potential uses may well conflict with each other. There are loads of issues to overcome here. According to a paper by Lauder et al, there are 570 million farms worldwide and 75% of these are run by individual families. That's a lot of people that you have to either convince or incentivize or both to change their farming practices, some of which will go back decades or centuries, to practices that are more sustainable and better for CO2 sequestration. 
And all these people are hardly making vast sums of money either. They may not have the resources available to just up and change what they're doing, particularly if they have to compete with others who might be sticking to older ways. It's a lot to ask a group of people to do, to, to feed the world and to draw down carbon emissions at the same time. And I think it comes into this question of climate justice as well, which we're going to talk about, I think, in, in future episodes. If you're sitting in a city and telling someone who's living in the countryside that they both have to feed the city and cancel the city's carbon emissions as much as they possibly can, and you're not going to pay them to do it, but they should definitely do it because they're the only people who can, and they can't expand onto this land because this is being preserved, and they can't cut down this forest because this is being preserved for carbon reasons and all this sort of thing, that there becomes a question of the justice of that and the um, necessity for some sort of recompense if you're going to uh, rely on that and of course you can't again rely on nature and land and nature-based solutions i think to bail you out you obviously need to be reducing your emissions from the city as well and of course we know that the major economic and financial drivers are often going to point to more exploitative practices as ways of generating short-term profits we, we've seen historically how big businesses and big agriculture can often be behind these enclosure projects where land are basically taken or, or bought up at dirt cheap prices and then exploited in this way. And this is the kind of thing that we really have to, to lobby against. So the key, I think, is a greater awareness of the potential of these techniques and the co-benefits that they can offer to farmers and people involved in agriculture. We have to have governments that can regulate and set up incentive structures that can deal with this type of thing. And even when it's not governments, I think something like Nori, we interviewed the CEO there a few months ago, the, the startup that we interviewed on this show, people can buy carbon credits in exchange for paying farmers to adopt these more regenerative practices. And that kind of thing could certainly be part of the solution if it's managed properly, if the accountancy is done well. Now, sitting in a city or a town or a village like I do, where you don't actually manage any land, it can seem difficult for any of us to really influence this type of policy. Maybe you don't know any farmers, maybe you don't own any land. This is where I think a combination of obviously the political things that I talked about before and advocating for this type of policy and finding out what politicians think about this sort of thing and who's running the environment agency and so on is important. But also the demand side measures as well we can all get involved with. Don't waste food. Consume some more of these perennial crops rather than the annual crops, helping to shift demand towards lower carbon products by changing our diets. You've got to be a kind of engaged citizen when it comes to con consuming these things as much as you possibly can. Of course, there are ways that consumers could make that easier as well. I think there are ways that people who sell products can make it easier as well. But th these will be the sort of things that will be our, our major weapons in making sure that what we eat and how we manage land is, is being done in a regenerative way, in a way that reduces carbon emissions and even sucks CO2 out of the atmosphere on average um, and, and helps get us out of this mess that we're in at the moment. So next episode, we'll finish our series on Project Drawdown, and we're going to discuss some more of the practical solutions that they propose to mitigate climate change, from energy efficiency to cleaner cookstoves. Thanks for listening to this episode of Climate 201 from Physical Attraction. Remember, you can find us on the web at physicspodcast.com if you have any comments, questions, concerns, things you'd like to hear about, corrections, people are always keen to put those in, uh, things that you don't want to hear about, um, messages for the, the creator of the show, please send them there. There's the contact form you can get onto at physicspodcast.com. That goes straight to my email. I try and respond to all of the questions.
questions that I get and I always love hearing from people so if you have time in your day even just to say thanks that it's great I love hearing from it and of course now we're doing this biggest episode on climate change there's plenty of topics that we've got yet to cover in this series but things that you'd like to hear about I'd love to know you can of course follow us on the web at twitter you can get in touch with us on facebook at the physical attraction page there's the science podcast page which is a networking hub for science podcasters and science podcasts alike uh, please do join that if you're interested in finding out some new things to listen to aside from this show. And you can support us. You can support us on PayPal. The PayPal link is on the website physicalpodcast.com. Or you can go to Patreon, patreon.com slash physicalattraction. Now, there's plenty of bonus episodes there that you can get your hands on. You can get episodes of the show that haven't been released yet, that will be in the future, that have been recorded, um, all sorts of goodies. And you will only be charged when a new bonus episode comes out. So, the charging scheme is really very, very regular. But I think the important thing I would say here is that if you listen to this show, if you listen to other independent shows, if you enjoy them, if you get value out of them, then supporting these things financially is not just about making sure that I have enough money to buy food or anything like that. It's more about the principle of the thing and making sure that the stuff that you like continues to exist into the future and making it a sustainable thing for the creators as well. I think certainly since I started this show, I've made it a point to contribute more to all of the shows that I listen to, to the extent that actually the first few pledges that I got from Patreon went straight into other people's podcasts and I never saw any of the money um, because I think that I have to live what I preach and support the stuff that I enjoy and the stuff that I listen to. And, you know, the marvellous thing about podcasting, people will say, oh, everyone's got a podcast. There's podcasts coming out left, right and centre. The thing is, we can fill niches that mainstream entertainment will never do. You're never going to get that many documentaries about some of the crazy things and some of the niche things and some of the interesting things and some of the real issues that that we can cover as podcasters um, on, on mainstream media, on your BBCs, on your ITVs, on your Skies. The reason being that they have to appeal to as many people as possible for their business model. But our business model is, let's get a few dozen people, let's get a few hundred people who are interested in this and that can be enough for us. And I think that's really great. And it's produced such a diversity of content. So often I find that the coverage of stuff that I get from podcasts is, is better than anything that I'm getting in TV shows and films. So if you feel the same way about this or indeed any other podcast, I would urge you to support them. Now, the theme music for this show, I do mean to keep mentioning this. I'm going on for a bit of a longer time than usual here. Melody Sheep. Melody Sheep, thanks to them. They're on Patreon too. They donated the theme music to this show. If you enjoy it, check them out. They've done loads and loads of science-themed songs and musical pieces and soundscapes. Until next time, then, please take care. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. 
At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling, you impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.